Layered Insight is the industry's first embedded security approach for containers. Trusted by Global 1000 Enterprises to secure their containerized applications, it's the only solution that requires no root privileges, has zero dependency on the underlying infrastructure, and is fully portable across any container environment. Unified DevOps and SecOps, enabling the rapid development of containerized applications without worrying about security. To learn more, please visit layeredinsight.com forward slash ASW. Rapid7 powers the practice of SecOps. Using shared data, analytics, and automated workflows, SecOps unites IT, DevOps, and security teams to make security an outcome of innovation. Rapid7 combines technology, expertise, and advocacy to drive vulnerability management, application security, incident detection, and log management for more than 7,000 organizations worldwide. Power up your SecOps practice with a free trial at rapid7.com forward slash security weekly. Hard-coded credentials can be trouble, but not as much trouble as a vulnerable DevOps environment. If you want protection without the hassle of security slowing you down, CyberArk, the number one provider in privilege access security, has the solution for you. With CyberArk Conjure, developers can easily secure secrets across any DevOps toolchain or platform, whether your application runs in the cloud or on-premises. Eliminate the headaches of managing secrets and try Conjure open source for free with no strings attached. Visit conjure.org forward slash ASW to get started today. Signal Sciences is the industry's first web protection platform that works in any cloud, any container, any platform as a service, and any modern application architecture. The Signal Sciences web protection platform can be deployed in next generation WAF, RASP, or reverse proxy modes, giving customers ultimate flexibility and coverage. Protect your web applications with Signal Sciences web protection platform. Signal Sciences, protecting applications, connecting teams. For more information, check them out at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Welcome back, everyone, to Application Security Weekly. We got some interesting stories this week. First up, a Boeing 757 was hacked remotely while it sat on the runway. This was pretty crazy to me because, uh, you know, it's sitting on the runway. Obviously, people are sitting in terminals and they probably have Wi-Fi access of some kind. And uh, back in September of 2016, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security revealed uh, it was able to successfully hack an airliner while it was on the ground in Atlantic City, New Jersey. The funniest part about this article, Paul, is they said, don't panic too much. The hack of the legacy commercial airliner was an exercise conducted by a team of security professionals. That doesn't make me feel any better, Paul. How, what do you think about this? Uh, yeah, I was wondering what the context was around this story. Um, you know, I, I mean, obviously it was a controlled uh, test. So, and they kind of made it sound like it wasn't in the in the headline, right? Like, oh my God, someone right. hacked an airplane. Um, but you know, I mean, it's a system like anything else, of course, you know, people are going to be able to gain un unauthorized access to it. Um, you know, the question is how they did it. What were the details of it? What did they get access to? What, I mean, define hacked here, right? Right. And, and so the little articles that they gave, so this was a CyberSat summit in Tyson's corner, Virginia, that this was revealed. Uh, the details are that in this case, they kept it classified, of course, but it did involve accessing and gaining control of the plane systems through radio frequency communications. Surprise, surprise, right? So we've had a number of uh, discussions lately, both on Paul Security Weekly as well as this show, on radio frequency hacks, whether it was the, the actual like door locks for uh, you know NFC, for example, or, uh, or in this case, the sirens that were also hacked via the radio signals uh, back in, I think it was Austin, Texas. So I think this is yet another situation where basically they've depended too much on radio signals or radio frequency communications to planes that in the past people didn't have the technology to 
actually, you know, generate the kind of radio signals they need to generate to talk to these things. And well, now they can. Uh, so the thing that I got out of this, though, which to me, I thought was, I don't know if it was crass is the right word, but the at the end of the article, they stated that the cost to change one line of code on a piece of avionics equipment is $1 million, and it takes about a year to implement. Uh, so in effect, it would bankrupt a company such as like Southwest Airlines uh, if they had to go ahead and update the code and update the systems on those planes. And in my mind, it, it's a situation of, yes, it is a localized attack if someone has to be in an airport to mess with the plane's avionics uh, via radio frequency before it takes off. But even still, it's it's almost like, a, yeah, it's going to cost too much to fix it, so therefore we're not going to. Doesn't sound like the greatest excuse in this situation, which I thought was really, I don't know. Paul, do you have any thoughts to add here before we jump to a different story? Well, yeah, I think, you know, it's a matter of risk. And there's a big difference between, you know, I can get on and maybe access the in-flight entertainment system uh, and, and maybe plant something that tries to, you know, Trojan or, or drive by everyone who accesses it versus controlling the plane's avionics uh, equipment. Big difference there, right? And and that's going to... if the bug does call or the you know security vulnerability does cause that much to fix you're going to balance that with the risk now we don't know exactly the details of the attack so it's tough for us to say let's just hope because most of us get in airplanes more than a couple times a year that it's nothing major right right well not to mention too right if you're if you can do malicious things uh, that not only just affect the in-flight entertainment but you know the actual avionics right and you're sitting in an airport you could hit hundreds of planes sure. in a single day, right? Sure. Because it is the 757 and the 737 models are pretty popular, uh, especially by like, uh, I think Delta flies those as well as Southwest and others, right? So to that end, it's like a, a situation of here's hoping, but at the same time, uh, as, as we've come to find it, you know, in many cases, malicious actors get very creative with the ways that they adopt what is otherwise uh, state agency techniques and, and tactics, right? So I think it's probably a matter of time before someone manages to figure out what was done here. But then again, getting your hands on or getting near a 737 or 757 to practice this sort of thing is not easy to do. Uh, so to that end, I, I'm just hoping that airlines will perhaps start to take this into their R&D process and deliver secure by default before they actually, uh, you know, ship them to the customers that are purchasing them. That's kind of my final thoughts there. I did want to skip ahead to the uh, Twitter story here, which was uh, late breaking news. I think it was Thursday of last week, where Twitter said all 336 million users should change their passwords because, in this case, the company found that they were storing uh, user passwords in plain text and an internal log uh, as part of their system. What was most interesting about this to me is they use Bcrypt, uh, and, and as does GitHub, who had a similar issue earlier in the week affecting a smaller number of their customers. And that they are logging anything that could be related to credentials before it actually gets hashed um, was most interesting to me in particular. But the thing that I find kind of ironic here is I think that as we get closer to GDPR being delivered here in a few weeks, we're going to see more of this story because people are going back and looking for things like, yeah. uh, you know, log files with passwords in them. Paul, do you have anything to add? I think it sounds to me, if I had to venture a guess, there's usually debug code involved that someone accidentally left in that is yep. writing it to a log file before uh, the encryption process takes place, um, which, you know, the likely scenario is that 
nobody unauthorized had access to that log. I think Twitter is rightfully so erring on the side of caution and saying, well, if someone did get into a, in one of our systems and did obtain a copy, everyone should change their passwords just in case. I don't think that's the case, uh, although we'll never truly know unless someone you know claims to have everyone's Twitter password. I also thought it was astonishing that Twitter definitively said it was like everyone's password. Like there wasn't a subset. We talked about the RSA uh, leak, right? It was a subset of the people. And a lot of these attacks are sometimes subsets uh, of the, this was the every single Twitter user, which was kind of concerning uh, the scope of the hack, certainly. And the fact, the other bad thing about this, which is why I also believe that uh, Twitter kind of sounded the alarm was it was in clear text. Like it wasn't even the encrypted one where you'd have to crack them to get out. A lot of the password leaks we've seen in the past involve some level of cracking. And not that that's not that that's necessarily difficult depending on how they encrypted it. Um, but when you think about the volume of 3,300 million plus uh, users, that's a lot of cracking. And I mean, sure, you have targeted attacks, but it wasn't even necessary. So this was bad for those reasons. Um, I think there's probably a, a developer that uh, had a heart attack or is on a downward spiral because they're the ones that left the debug code in, and I feel bad for whoever that person is. Yeah, yeah. And I, honestly, though, the funniest thing about this is I get the feeling that there's probably a library in use uh, that both Twitter and GitHub are using that caused this behavior to uh, present itself. Uh, and so I suspect that at some point we may get a postmortem on it. I just hope that it comes sooner than later because I, I guarantee you there's other companies that could probably, uh, you know, derive some lessons from this as well. But at the same time, I'm sure that folks like Twitter and GitHub are a little bit tight-lipped about exactly how this presented itself, maybe out of embarrassment or maybe just simply out of trying to protect companies from, uh, you know, having mass panic as a result of the fact that they're also using this bad library. And there's no definitive way for you to know unless you go look at the code that you maybe you influenced it badly. But that's kind of my suspicion at this point is it's related to something in one of the libraries that they're using uh, that caused this behavior to present itself. I also think it's worth the headache of maintaining two-factor across your accounts. Yes. Which, to be quite honest, is a headache. Um, because sometimes you get a YubiKey, sometimes you get a text message, and sometimes you get an authenticator app. There really isn't anything that I've that I've discovered when you're using other people's uh, software applications that... It's kind of like, oh, I have this one two-factor authentication thing. Like Facebook supports one type of YubiKey, the last I checked. Some services offer just text messages. Some let you choose between authenticator and text message. Some use the text message as a backup to your authenticator, which you might as well just dumb down to the least secure two-factor if you can't turn that off. And then if you turn that off and you're not good about keeping your phone or, or backing up your authenticator app, settings which admittedly i haven't really figured out uh when you get a new phone all your authenticator app stuff goes away and then you're in you're in a a potentially a bad place for sure and and for me um the way that i generally deal with that it's not the best practice but it's it's a good one in my mind is whenever you set up two-factor authentication you have the ability to download like you know uh, a set of keys that you can use if you actually lost your phone or or something of that nature yep i had that thankfully secure storage of that is hard, which is, uh, it's funny because what I ended up doing is I wrote a quick bash script that basically runs things through, I think it's OpenSSL. I forget the exact library that it uses, but it it allows you to AES-256 encrypt anything with a password. Uh, so what I end up doing is I always download that file. 
I, I actually have it up on my GitHub. So github.com slash and my hacks slash scripts uh, has my in, my encrypt and my decrypt uh, SS or not SSH, but uh, shell script files. And so I literally just run it through that. I set a password to it. I put that password in my password vault. And now I've got that file stored with all of my keys securely. Right. Outside uh, and then of your... I put that on like a... Yeah, and outside of your password vault, right? I mean, because you could put those backup codes inside your password vault as like a note or something, but one could then right. call into question like you've got your both factors of authentication essentially in your in your password vault. And I also know LastPass has something where they can manage those codes, which I haven't enabled because I kind of, I'm paranoid, right? I'm, I don't want my factors mixing in with each other, right? Right, right, right. And so for me, I usually put those on like an external um, mm -hmm. hard disk as well, right? So my, my threat vector is literally twofold. Someone has literally stolen my external hard drive and uh, well, first of all, they have the password to that external drive that's already encrypted by itself, but then they also have, they must have access to my password vault as well. Um, so I am, I am limiting my factors of uh, risk there pretty heavily. So that's probably the best way to deal with the situation in my mind is first, yes, set up two-factor or multi-factor authentication of any kind. The inconvenience is worth it in my mm -hmm. mind when you run into these situations. Um, when you get notified by haveibeenpwned.com, thank you, Troy Hunt, mm -hmm. uh, that you've got, a, you, you know, there is a breach and your password may have been involved in that breach or your hashed password may have been involved in that breach. Um, having that second factor gives you time, right? Uh, to, to address that appropriately, which I, I think is important. Uh, moving on from that, though, I did want to talk about uh, how under the If You Build It, They Will Come, uh, story number one, which is how somebody tried to hide a backdoor in a popular JavaScript NPM package. Uh, this package was specific, specifically the Get Cookies uh, package, which is relatively new, but it was actually bundled up into other packages, such as the Mail Parser package uh, as a, a dependency. And so the backdoor mechanism uh, in this case would allow for people to effectively grab browser cookies, which by the way, most uh, websites use those for session management. And it, in this case, it would allow them to input arbitrary code into a running server and execute it. So effectively now you're running your server with the get cookies functionality to validate your sessions as the server administrator uh, that has written this application that happens to rely on get cookies. And the backdoor now allows effectively, literally like remote code execution against your box because you're using that library. Now, I feel like we talked about exactly this problem in like episode three or episode four, which was fictitious at the time of us discussing it just you know a couple of months ago. And here we are in May and it's, it's happened. Uh, someone's already tried to do that. Uh, Paul, any additional thoughts here? I know that NPM and, uh, and just recently bought uh, Uplift uh, who who does the node security package? So thoughts on this, Paul? Yeah, I think it's uh, along those lines of that acquisition, and I'm not sure what their technology looks like. And I know they're industry buzzwords, but it's certainly a great use case for machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, to be able to review the code as automated as they can uh, as it's committed, uh, and, and maybe even take action with the artificial intelligence piece to. To make those happen. So I, people confuse the terms all the time, right? Machine learning, perhaps, to discover the patterns and identify the malicious add-ons or modules or, you know, plugins or whatever that we've discussed uh, having this problem. And then AI that would go in and take action, uh, you know, based on the, the machine learning would be, I think, a great usage of that technology. That's, of course, a very, very high level uh, of how it works. 
um, or could work, for example. But I think this is a great use case for that. Absolutely. And I think that Apple and Google try to do this in some ways mm -hmm. with uh, their respective you know, mobile stores. Uh, and so, yeah, this is a yet another situation where the ubiquity of Node Package Manager across uh, a number of different environments uh, and frameworks and libraries is it's it's pretty much the core of everything that you do when you're developing a modern web application. Yeah, and, and so I mean, case, Apple and Google have the talent too, uh, and Amazon. Because yeah. don't forget, they all have their AI things that I won't say the names because it's going to trigger everyone's their device, right? But all of the verbal Siri and Amazon Echo uh, and the the Google stuff, right? All have their uh, artificial intelligence. So they I mean they've got like the corner on the market of the technical people who can implement this. Um, I would see those larger companies in Apple certainly proven this with their their iOS market, right? Being able to implement this type of technology. Um, but the you know the most talented people in the world, from what you know, folks that have done the research have told me, like they pretty much work for those three companies. Uh, and, and they have that expertise. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if there are newer players that can bring to market this type of technology, to, specifically in this case, to protect malicious software from entering an ecosystem. For sure, and especially an ecosystem that's becoming more and more important to modern web development. Mm -hmm. I mean, we covered uh, in a previous show that 50% of the vulnerabilities uh, in the CVE database that were reported and disclosed last year, again, that's not all of the vulnerabilities that were reported, but necessarily... Uh, the ones that were reported disclosed and had a CVE number associated were web vulnerabilities. And here we are talking about a package that's used in a web server that yep. ultimately allows for remote code execution. The thing that I found interesting about this I think 80% of those are WordPress plugins too. Probably. I wouldn't be I would not be surprised. <laughs> Pretty high percentage. That was the case. Yeah. Uh, but what was interesting about this is uh, in this case it was mail parser which was a deprecated package that had the get cookies um, package is kind of a dependency. Mm. And even though mail parser was deprecated, it still had over 66,000 weekly downloads. Mm -hmm. I'm blaming Stack Overflow here. I'm willing to bet right. that there's probably some serious articles about doing parsing uh, or mail parsing in this case um, with webmail of some kind, I'm sure is what the applications are related to, that says to use mail parser, even though it's a deprecated package. Um, so to that end, it's like, okay, here's this, here's the situation that we were most afraid of is People are using the knowledge that exists, which, by the way, is still dated and hasn't the knowledge base itself hasn't been deprecated, just the package that they talk about. You know, and it so, begs the question, Keith, in a development process, how do you discover and identify packages that your application is relying on that don't necessarily have a vulnerability, right? And the package isn't broken because I'm still able to pull it down. But how do you identify those as deprecated and make a note to the developer yeah. to say, it might not be critical like right now, it's not on fire, but by the way, this package has been deprecated and you might want to go out and find something else because there's no more updates coming to this particular package. That's something that I had not considered uh, in our discussions on this show. As a developer, admittedly, you generally just ignore the warnings that mm -hmm. you're getting when you pull it down and you just oh, wait. keep going. <laughs> and now that I think about it in our own internal application, I have seen that error. And I have largely <laughs> ignored it because I'm like, oh, that's not a priority right now. But now in the context of our uh, conversation about this vulnerability, I think it's something that we have to pay attention to. In that sense, in Python, it tells you when you start up your application that there are deprecated packages. So that's something you could certainly monitor and parse the logs in, you know, with something like Jenkins or whatever. Something in your process could identify that and tell you. And you yeah. would probably still just ignore it. 
most of the time you ignore it because you want it to work. And mm-hmm. it's the fragile, fragile infrastructure problem, right? If you have not got the Docker containers loading this appropriately, where you can go and break this and see if you can actually get it to work appropriately and, you know, kind of bang around on it. Um, yeah, you're not going to fix it ultimately as a, as a developer, which is the most unfortunate thing here. Uh, but back in August of last year, NPM actually did remove 38 JavaScript packages that were seen as malicious. Mm-hmm. And apparently this similar things happened with the uh, Python package index where they found in this case, uh, let's see, does it say, it, it doesn't say in this case, but they did find a number of vulnerabilities in a similar s- scenario where you mm-hmm. had dependencies that were deprecated that had uh, malicious code in them. So if you see those warnings, do not ignore them. Actually try to go take a, a deeper look because as much as it might be working today, first, as a security team or as a developer, build resilient development processes and then go fix everything mm-hmm. as much as possible. Um, I know we have a few minutes left here. I also wanted to cover a couple of things. Uh, first, there was under story number two for the if you build it section uh, that you can finally encrypt Slack messages. So I know that we talked, I think, uh, on a previous show about how Slack allows uh, any admin to read any message that you've sent uh, in private DMs or otherwise on Slack. It is a, a specific setting that uh, managers of a Slack channel can leverage. Uh, but in this case, uh, a tool has been released and it's called a Slack. Uh, I think it's supposed to be like shh and slack all at once. Ah. Uh, but in this case, it, it allows you to encrypt your messages. Uh, so that way, if you have a private message with someone else, it can't be read. It's by minded security. It's available as a browser extension or a patch for the Slack application. Uh, so just to kind of mention that I don't, you use Slack internally. I know that we sometimes chat about, uh, or chat on Slack during the show, Paul, uh, any, any additional thoughts here? Well, if you like Slack, I put a Slack channel inside your Slack channel, Keith. Oh, <laughs> there it is. There it is. Uh, what was that? Uh, it's not, it's uh, not LL Cool J. Was it LL Cool J? Uh, it was Exhibit. The... Yes. Uh, sorry. Exhibit. Sorry. I know. I know. MTV show of old. Uh, the interesting thing that I thought about this was uh, it's using Crypto.js, which is a, jo- a JavaScript library that is not, uh, from what they say here, it's not great. It relies on pre-shared keys. Um, but it, in my mind, it's better than nothing. So definitely check that out. That's uh, story number two under the if you build it, they will come uh, section. Oh, so it sounds like it's kind of like uh, OTR was for yeah. like Pigeon and stuff like that. And it was over various protocols, instant messaging protocols that if you generated a key, you could do a key handshake with someone else who had generated a key. Yep. Exchange public keys, right? And then have your messages encrypted to and from each other. I think in this case, it, yeah, it's a, exactly a pre-shared key, but don't share it inside of Slack because that defeats the whole purpose because someone could go read that pre-shared key and therefore they're not listening to your conversations, right? Like, um, So it, in effect, you need to enter a different encrypted channel, share the pre-shared key that you're going to use for your Slack discussions uh, so that way they can be encrypted now as well. So um, we ought to get Jeff Mann on to talk about this because that man knows crypto better than anyone alive true. as far as I'm concerned. Well, maybe not anyone alive, but most people I know uh, know personally. And so I'd love to get him to t- come on and talk about crypto. Um, moving ahead, because I did want to cover a couple of things. Uh, so under Food for Thought, there was a picture that I, I linked to uh, that Chris Eng shared, which is from, uh, I believe it was the most recent Amazon uh, internal uh, summit that they have or internal conference that they have, which is called the Evolving Developer Mindset. I'll read it for the audience because I think it's important. And it, this is by Werner or Werner Vogels, the Amazon CTO uh, from last year's AWS reInvent. Uh, Werner says, 
Security is everyone's job now, not just the security teams. With continuous integration and continuous deployment, all developers have to be security engineers. We move too fast for there to be time for reviews by the security team beforehand. That needs automation, and it needs to be integrated into your process. Each and every piece should get security integrated into it before and after being deployed. Amen. Any additional things to add here, Paul? Yeah, I mean, I, I somewhat disagree. I think that security's role is not just to identify vulnerabilities or identify you know process improvements i think a lot of it is being able to uh like like qualify risk right and yeah and, and describe risk and and paint a picture and help do the threat modeling and just take into consideration all of the security controls and all of the security risks uh and help developers with that i mean it's one thing to tell developer, well, you know, you always have to be running the latest version. Like we all know that's not going to happen. You have to put it in, in context. So right. I do see a security role living for the foreseeable future, if not to like rubber meets the road security, but helping with that process uh, and bringing the knowledge of and experience of security because developers still need to be focused on developing code. And sure, they're going to play a larger role, I think, in the execution but there's still that architecture phase uh, that needs to happen. And I, I think security is going to play a role in that process. In fact, I'll talk about it in my talk on Wednesday. When you're putting together your architecture for whatever software, like let's say you're using Docker in a DevOps environment, when you put together your architecture, security has to be there to, to help with, you know, that traditional security knowledge we have certainly applies to a microservices environment, let's say, because there are concepts, and I, I have it in air quotes, like networking, right? And right. data storage and, and configuration, and that stuff is there. It's just different today, but there's still a security architecture that has to be taken into consideration. And I don't think we should put it on developers to understand every different threat model there is out there and, and build the whole thing on their own. I think we have to help with that process. I think we should help with that process. And it's not because developers can't do it. It's that everyone has their different focus, right? We can't expect every developer to be a security expert. We need them to execute our, our security architecture, right? And they're going to take a larger role, I think, than more traditionally. And I think that what will ultimately happen is uh, security professionals, especially ones that work with uh, software development teams in general, will almost become embedded in the software team, right? Like they will be a person on that team that is identifying technologies that can allow them to deliver their product securely without having to think too much about it, uh, which is ultimately, I think, where I see security professionals, especially application security professionals, moving toward. Now, there will always be those organizations that are you know, 10, 20, 50 years behind on the way that they do security or the way that they do development. Uh, but more and more, I think what will ultimately happen is those security professionals will need to understand how you know development actually works yeah. and then also be able to identify technologies that can help the development team be better at their job without having to think about being secure in the process. They just I will agree. be. So two last things I wanted to cover is first, it's a couple of weeks old now, but Haroon Mir and the folks at Thinkst, uh, so they make canary.tools, which is like you can put a honeypot on files and things. They also make, of course, uh, network-based canaries. Um, they had a, a nice review of hosting their their booth at RSA this year. And I thought, you know, what a cool idea to take the process of going to RSA and treating it like a feedback loop, just like you would when you're doing development, right? You do A-B testing, you try to push it to production, and you do build testing. 
Uh, and so they actually took the whole concept of going out to RSA for just under 50K and did like an entire write-up and a reflection on it. Uh, some of the things, of course, that they learned is talking about, you know, price gouging by RSA for booth size, uh, how vendors can be a little bit intense. And then also uh, for them, uh, it was actually a lot of value in their demo specifically. But uh, I'll let folks read the article. That's story number two under the food for thought section. Uh, I'm a big fan of Haroon and the team over there at Thinkst. So I definitely recommend checking it out, especially if you you work for a company that's thinking about having a booth at RSA. Uh, I think it's a, a very even keeled review of, you know, cost to value analysis for them and, and for I'm sure other companies will find value there as well. I think uh, it was a, an interesting piece of the piece of the puzzle. And I think that attending an event in in having a present there presence there is just it's one part of your go to market plan. And I thought right. that was I thought their analysis of the actual RSA conference itself was good and I appreciate them sharing that information. I think that's a good piece of knowledge to have. However, I didn't think the article kind of spoke to how that fits into your overall nurturing campaign. Right. And, you know, these are conversations we have on Business Security Weekly. Certainly, not necessarily for here, but um, you know, it didn't speak to the full the full picture. I also think that if you can make sales right at at RSA, that's great. Um, yeah. Also, consider could you have made those somewhere else, or how that fits in your overall plan to nurture people and have it be part of your program. In that sense. Maybe the investment was worthwhile. Maybe it wasn't. It depends on how you look at it, right? Uh, right. And I think right. that you can make more of your return on investment by having a an encompassing marketing plan that taking what you know Haroon and team have put together and taking that consideration as to what it costs and what the value is and incorporating that into a larger plan. I just you know I thought that was uh, something that was you know not necessarily missing, but it was a piece of the puzzle. Sure, sure. This was uh, we we get the microservices architecture view of this. We got mm -hmm. to see just this containers uh, view of the overall picture. And you're right. There's there is a bigger picture here uh, to be orchestrated by marketing teams and product development teams and and of course uh, you know sales teams, right? Yep. So I, I liked it from the perspective of it was a, a ground truth review of their experience in the booth, but it's. It is a microcosm, for lack of a better term. You're right, Paul. It's not an overall picture of everything that they're going to do this year, but it's the, if you are going to do RSA and only going to do RSA, these are the things to take away from it. So I thought that that was good. The last thing I did want to cover here, of course, there is a, our favorite commit strip uh, under number five for Food for Thought. Uh, that's reading an article on your phone for 2018. But the last thing I did want to talk about was VS Code extensions for happier JavaScript coding. Uh, myself, I'm a huge fan of VS Code, and so it does have a few must-haves in there. Uh, that's ESLint, GitLens, To-Do Highlight, and Import Cost. Uh, of those, the one that I'm going to highlight here is the Import Cost uh, plugin, which quite literally will tell you in almost like a commented fashion next to every import you do in your code, how large of an import it is that you are now inferring, whether that's you know 64 kilobytes or 5 kilobytes, um, which as I'm sure you've probably seen, Paul, Development today seems to just be using as much possible space on your system uh, as it can consume. And so in this case, I thought that, that was kind of cool. Uh, any additional thoughts for that particular one? I know that you must be doing a, at least a decent number of imports on uh, your you know, post-production works tool. Sure. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I think it speaks to containers in, in one of your goals. And, and it's not something that's easy when you take an existing application, certainly, and start to put that in a container environment to get your containers as small as possible 
is is really hard, but it's really important, yeah. right? Like it just it helps with the entire flow of your DevOps process to have those containers be as small as possible. And looking at your imports is certainly part of that. So I like this tool that it can help me make sure that my containers are uh, as small as possible. Because that, I mean, that can, in enlarged environments, I mean, that can have some pretty big impacts as to how much you uh, spend power, in cost. compute power yeah. cost, like the whole development workflow making that uh, software development process as f fast as possible uh, <clears throat> really comes down to speed. I think it's one of the huge advantages between containers and virtualization is it gives you that, that uh, ability to, to really trim down your containers. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And especially like if you're doing that today with a JavaScript application, uh, I know that, you know, importing things from node can be immense. And so if you're going to import just the piece that you need rather than the whole nine yards, uh, it's going to make your life a whole lot better. Uh, the last couple of nice to haves that they include for extensions is Prettier, which is a code formatter, open in browser, which I use personally, VS Code styled components, and bookmarks, which I thought was kind of an interesting concept. I went and grabbed it as soon as I saw it, uh, which is basically bookmarking parts of your code. If it isn't necessarily readable or you don't know exactly where a function is going to live because you have kind of, you know, disparate or, or dispersed uh, code that you've written for different functions or different uh, packages inside of your application. I thought bookmarks was pretty cool because now you can kind of quickly jump between things inside of your application. Because Paul, as you and I both know, documentation is a pipe dream. Sometimes. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> cool. Well, with that, thank you everyone for joining us this week for another episode of Application Security Weekly. Remember to get commit and stay classy.